Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we hear from a Toronto woman sharing her story about nearly falling victim to a new kind of scam. She then took to social media to warn others about it and heard from more than a few who hadn't been so lucky. With winter on the way, we're still coping with an ever-changing COVID virus. And this year, health experts expect other illnesses such as the flu to make a comeback. We find out what you should know to protect yourself and your family. Reports suggest China is recruiting retired fighter pilots from Western countries to train their air force. As many as 30 pilots from Britain and Australia have reportedly been brought on by Beijing and Canada is investigating. So what exactly is China paying for? And how much of a threat is it to our national security? But first, in the end, it was brutal and very short. Liz Truss has resigned as Prime Minister of Britain after only 44 days, the shortest time in office in UK history, brought down by six weeks of economic chaos and growing opposition within her party. So what next for the UK and the Conservatives, and what lesson does her downfall have for politicians elsewhere, including here in Canada? Well, first up, days ago, a British tabloid began live streaming footage of a portrait of the UK's Prime Minister Liz Truss. It was a framed photo beside a head of lettuce. And this basic question, can Truss outlast this lettuce? Now, the smart money was on the vegetable, and they were right. This was British Prime Minister Liz Truss just yesterday during another chaotic and shambolic question period in London. Mr. Speaker... I am a fighter and not a quitter. I have acted in the national interest to make sure that we have economic stability. Well, less than 24 hours later, just 44 days on the job, and she did indeed quit. Six weeks of economic instability brought on by aggressive tax cuts and spending rises with no way of paying for them, forcing the Bank of England to step in and buy British debt. Uh, She retreated from that, fired the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Finance Minister, then pretty much trashed the whole plan, but that was it. It was already too late. The knives were out from people in her own party, and she was done. Trust becomes the shortest-serving Prime Minister in British history. Given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. Just seven seconds of that there. The whole thing was just 93 seconds, imagine. Trust says she will stay in that position until until a new leader is elected next week. So here we go again. Another conservative leadership fight just a few months after Trust won the honour or whatever of replacing the equally unpopular Boris Johnson. Now, opposition Labour Party leader Keir Starmer calls for an immediate general election and says Trust's sudden resignation may be high political drama, but Britain is paying a very real cost. Well, what a mess. And this is not just a soap opera at the top of the Tory party. It's doing huge damage to our economy and to the reputation of our country. And the public are paying with higher prices, with higher mortgages. So who can fix this so-called mess called Britain these days? And better yet, for our purposes, are there lessons in Truss's brief and bungled reign for other would-be leaders out there today offering simple solutions, ideological solutions, say, to complex issues, only to have it come back and bite them on the backside, so to speak? Ideology met reality, one veteran Conservative MP said, and as always, reality won. He reflected. Joining me now with more on this is Jeremy Kinsman. He's Canada's former High Commissioner to the United Kingdom. Thanks so much for your time. Hi, Ben. 
you know, I was thinking the last time we spoke, and because it wasn't that long ago, it happened to be 44 days ago or 45 days ago when Truss was about to become prime minister. How did this all go so wrong so fast? I guess she was the wrong person. And and the problem is that uh, the British had kind of adopted a new system. They'd gone the way of a lot of countries, including Canada to some extent, whereas political parties were criticized for making choices only by party elites. And uh, they threw it uh, open to the membership at large. So 200,000 people picked her. They didn't know her uh, very well. You know, she came sort of from nowhere. But she gave them a lot of kind of uh, identity candy to chew on. And uh, and she got chosen. And uh, then they found out what she was, really. And what she was was what she is, I suppose, is a, is a kind of a throwback economic libertarian uh, she modeled herself uh, on Margaret Thatcher uh, and and preached a, a doctrine of Reaganomics. Uh, that has been pretty discredited, you know, and has been held uh, responsible for an awful lot of the widening disparities in income in, in, in Western economies. And uh, so when she gave the message uh, to her party faithful that uh, she had one recipe uh, for success, and that's growth, 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 it sounded good to them, but it sounded horrible uh, to the rest of the country. Not that they didn't want growth, because Britain's been pretty sluggish in that respect, but because it was so risky what she was doing, and and so unfair in many ways. She uh, was uh, lessening significantly the uh, taxes uh, for the upper tax brackets of, of wealthy people in the country, and for, for corporations, she was postponing or actually eliminating a tax hike for them. And she was announcing some more spending, but they were unfunded uh, spending propositions and not for social services, which so many in the the British uh, population really relies on in what is, you know, a moment of great need with with inflation at 10.5 percent and food prices up 14 percent. 0.5% 0.5% over last year. So it was all pretty, pretty awful, Ben. I mean, she, she hit rock bottom. It's almost hard to believe that, uh, that a few days ago, her personal approval rating had sunk to 9%. I think, you know, Larry the cat at Downing Street would get more than 9%. In fact, Larry tweeted today, apparently <laughs> it went viral. He tweeted that, uh, uh, that in response to the the king's request, he had agreed to serve as prime minister uh, and put an end to all this nonsense. And of course, as I say, that went viral and pretty yeah. well uh, uh, pretty well describes the public mood in Britain about all of this shenanigans. Yeah, I saw Larry. Larry the cat is the house cat at 10 Downing Street where the Prime Minister of Britain lives. And he's quite a well-known cat. Uh, he had his own little podium in that uh, in that tweet that was sent out. I think he's actually now had four Prime Ministers. And he, again, uh, Jeremy, he's waiting now, I imagine, on a fifth. And and, and it just <laughs> yeah, seems unbelievable. I mean, what's... so. Within a week, they have to choose someone new. I hear Boris Johnson's trying to make a comeback. So who can fix this mess for the conservative, let well, alone for Britain? Uh, it's but, it's yeah. complex. It's complex because Ben, uh, she, of course, was unelected by the uh, electorate. Uh, and uh, and, and that, so, so will this person be unelected by the electorate. 
Keith Starmer has a, a very, sorry, let's say, morally justifiable position that this means there ought to be a general election, for heaven's sake. But uh, that's the last thing the conservatives want, because they'd be virtually wiped out. I mean, the labor's uh, over 30 points ahead, according to the polls. And, and, and the conservatives have virtually lost uh, the support they had managed to get from normal labor voters. These would be normal blue-collar voters, particularly in the North, who had been frankly attracted by uh, Johnson's populist sort of outreach. He's a great vote-getter for some. Uh, and because of the unpopularity of the labor leader at the time, Jeremy Corbyn. So they don't want uh, they don't want to go to the polls. What they want, uh, the people in in the in the conservative parliamentary caucus, those members who are uh, going to uh, have a poll uh, uh, probably on Monday of uh, of those people who nominate themselves and are supported by at least a hundred of the sitting members of the Conservative Party. And there will only be two or three of those. Will Johnson be one of them? I don't know. It's touch and go. As I say, uh, Johnson is uh, counting on his reputation as being a great vote-getter. He's a great retail politician, of course. But, you know, when he quit in in September, in fact, he had been forced out, as you know. (laughs) Not long ago. uh, His his disapproval rating was at 69%. So this is not a unifier. They need somebody to bring all of those quarreling post-Brexit factions in the party together to regain the confidence uh, in both their unity and their competence uh, uh, on behalf of, of the British people. I think there are two people uh, who can do that, uh, that are that are likely to run and likely to get those hundred letters of support. One is Rishi Sunak, who right. came uh, runner-up to Liz Truss uh, the last time. Uh, it was only in September, good heavens. Um, <laughs> last time, uh, yeah, it was, who, it was who about is, six weeks ago, yeah. Yeah, who was who was the uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, essentially, as you said earlier, their finance minister, um, and, and and he's an extremely intelligent guy. The downside of him is that he's probably judged by some, at least, we'll see how many, to be too young. He's only forty-two. He's he's very bright, and he's very competent on finance, but but he's being asked to be the prime minister. Uh, a much yeah, broader a mandate and, and remit, and and his past has been entirely in financial services. He's also right. and and this leads to a bit of mistrust. He's very very wealthy, largely because his wife is the heiress to uh, the founder of one of uh, India's probably greatest software company. is a billionaire, oh. and so I don't know if if he's he's going to get it. I would put it? my money Jeremy, on any. Yeah. Let me stop you right there, and we'll get to Penny Mordaunt right after this. I'm just going to take a quick break just so we don't run out of time, and then we'll get back to who the other candidate should be. I also wanted to ask you honestly about what this could mean for other leaders out there around the world who've watched Liz Truss go down in flames. You were saying that Elizabeth Mordaunt would be the other choice, you think. Uh, quickly, why would that be? Do you think she would be a good choice to be Penny, the next? Penny Mordaunt. Penny Mordaunt, rather. Uh, Penny Mordaunt, right. Yeah, Penny Mordaunt. She's a former minister of defense. She's She's rather low key. She's not terribly well known. Uh, uh, she's she's a conciliator. She's a consensus builder. 
she was uh, in favor of Brexit, but a soft Brexit. She probably would have been a supporter of uh, Theresa May's uh, outreach uh, toward the European Union to to reach some kind of post-Brexit agreement that made sense uh, to do with the the European Union, which is 43 percent of uh, of Britain's export market, after all, but which the ideologues under Boris Johnson kind of refused. And it's it put them in a, a, you know, very poor economic posture in consequence. Yeah. Uh, so Penny Mordaunt, uh, I, I think, would be an attractive uh, choice. She she came in third. She was, was one of the, the three finalists in the final ballot uh, uh, in September. Um, and, uh, and, you know, uh, she, she'd be a good choice, but so would Sunak. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see what happens. I'd be surprised to, to see that anyone actually wants the job these days. So that was <laughs> Ralph Goodale talking, talking about the fact that there really won't be much of an impact on our relations with Britain, with all this chaos. It feels like the, the, there must be a lot of distracted bureaucrats, let alone distracted, uh, MPs and ministers in Britain right now, not paying much attention to all the other work that has to be done. I, I think more than discouraged, I would say uh, demoralized because, you know, various epithets have been used, you know, calling this the clown car, and you know, uh, uh, this, this uh, appalling soap opera. But it's it's uh, there's been an awful lot of rhetoric flying around. And uh, and I think the professionals uh, in government and the professionals in the party and serious people in the party were just disgusted. And it all came out last night with a a very, very troubled, uh, uh, vexed uh, session uh, in Parliament when she was trying to get uh, members of the Conservative Party to what they call take the whip, which is yes. uh, to, to ensure they voted for Stand a, in line. Uh, yeah, exactly. a controversial, controversial motion. And there was pushing and shoving going on. It was, uh, it was really unseemly. So I, I, think, I think that there's a sense of relief that at least an adult is going to be taken over. Should be. Um, and lessons here, quickly. Lessons for those around the world who may look to England and think, oh, I hope we avoid that. Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, we haven't avoided it because we've thrown our nomination processes and political parties out to uh, members and people selling memberships. And, and you know, these campaigns are... Kim Campbell once said when she was running uh, 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 um, against Jean Chrétien in 19, mm. whenever it was, 93, that, you know, mm. an election campaign is no time to to uh, discuss policy. But uh, and she was ridiculed for that. But, of course, uh, politically, she was speaking reality. Uh, and uh, these these leadership campaigns don't don't allow for much of that. They're all soundbite driven, you know. And 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 that's what happens when you put it out to the broader membership. It's it's thought to be a more democratic option, but really it, it it's a foolish option in some ways because the party is is not reflective of the uh, electorate at large. And the Conservative Party in Canada has come up with three successive leaders. We'll see how Poilievre does. Yeah. But the two predecessors won the party, but they couldn't win the country for exactly those reasons. And uh, be, I think yeah. that uh, what you need to do is to have those policy debates uh, in, in a sense that you really do understand before they take office what what the hell the person in, in question stands for. 
Jeremy Kinsman, very wise advice, I would say, given all that we've seen in Britain in just 44 short days since we last spoke, as a matter of fact. And hopefully I don't have to speak to you about this again in the next uh, month or so, but we never know. Well, uh, thanks I'd again love for your... to, but for her sake and Britain's, I hope not. Not on that. Indeed. Indeed, Jeremy. Thank you so much once again. You bet. Bye-bye. Now, I imagine in your wanderings or just in life in general over time that all of you have been the target of some sort of scam somehow, somewhere. Maybe it was willing. Maybe it wasn't. Um, Maybe someone tried to take advantage of surprise. Maybe they tried to play on fear. Perhaps it was compassion appealing to your good nature, a call for help, a plea for help. It was the latter um, that my next guest uh, was uh, subjected to. That was the appeal, a recent Toronto film graduate, Saja Kalani. Uh, she found herself in a situation recently where she was uh, walking on a busy Toronto street in broad daylight when a 14-year-old boy stopped to ask her for help. Now, she has a 14-year-old brother, so she thought, well, if that were my brother, I'd really want someone to help him out. Um, what he wanted, or what he told her, was that the taxi he had taken didn't take cash, and that's all that he had. So could she use her debit card to pay the cab driver, and he would give her the cash for the fare? Now, maybe you're a skeptical person, and your alarm bells are already going off. Maybe not. Who knows? But in the moment, maybe you're just going to go with it, because you think, ah, you know, this 14-year-old needs help. He seems like he's on his own. That's what Saja did. So, um... She proceeded with this, but caught on pretty quickly that things weren't quite as they seemed. Uh, The good news, again, is that Saja caught on. And when it was all said and done, she posted a warning on TikTok that received more than 100,000 likes. Here's a bit of it. If you live in Toronto or anywhere in the GTA, this is for you. Please watch this. I've never done this before where I share something, but I really hope I could help avoid this from happening to anyone else. So... She found out that other people had indeed had this happen to them, and they weren't so lucky they had lost money. So what happened, and how can you be on the lookout for similar scams? Even if you don't live in Toronto, you know that scam artists copy each other. If something works, you're no doubt going to see it somewhere else other than Toronto. Uh, Joining me now from Toronto with more on what she saw uh, and some advice, here is Saja Kalani. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. So tell me a bit about how this happened, because it sounds like it happened sort of in under the most routine of circumstances that you found yourself in. Yes. So I was walking on um, a random day, October 16th, around uh, 4.30 p.m. And uh, this child just approached me out of the blue and he looked very desperate. He asked me, you know, I just took this driver. Could you help me with something? And um I wasn't really doing anything. I was just walking around and he's around the same age as my brother. So I said, you know, I'd want someone to stop and help out my brother. So he told me he just took this taxi here and the taxi does not take cash. He only takes card. And he's like, he showed me the cash on him. He's like, I tried giving him this bill. He wouldn't take it. Would you be able to help me? Um, So I went up to the driver just to confirm. I should have taken that as a first red flag, but I think I was a bit more worried about the kid uh did not even question if it was a scam or not i think because of covid i just assume maybe people perhaps do not use cash anymore something about the thing transmitting through through cash no idea i just went for it and um 
And this was a real taxi. Like this was an actual taxi. Well, it was what looked like it. It was a taxi. Right. It wasn't like your regular yellow cab type situation. Right. Um, but you know, there's Uber. There's a bunch of different stuff. So I know Uber is through card already. It's through your phone. But I just I didn't even question. You know, when you're in this situation, you kind of just think about the person that asked rather than like. I don't think my first instinct was to question the kid and his his uh, validity. I think it was just kind of just, oh, yeah, 100% you're in desperate situation. I'm here to help if I can. Um, and, yeah, and when I went to confirm with the driver, he told me I couldn't take cash. Do you have a card? And I said, yeah, for sure. He said, do you have a debit? Another red flag I should have uh, pointed out. But I think at that point I started being a little bit suspicious because as soon as I did give – my card, which I shouldn't have, I should have asked for the machine. The kid kept trying to ask for my attention. He kept trying to grab right. it, um, asking stuff like, oh, if you want to tip him, uh, you can give him extra. But anything just to kind of make sure that I was looking at him because I noticed that every time I kept looking at the cab, he kept asking more questions. And um, as an actor myself, I kind of study body, body language. And by right. then I was like, this is a bit. Got, they were putting on a show for you. Exactly. It's almost yeah. as if it was rehearsed. It was scripted right. from an actor's uh, point of view, no pun intended. But right. um, yeah, so uh, that, at that point, I looked from the corner of my eye and I saw that he swiped my card. He put it between his legs and he pretended like he was working on the machine somehow. And then um, he gave me the, the machine to put in the pin. And I put in the pin. I said, let me see where this is going. At that point, I was on to them. But um, when I came to remove the card, he kind of snatched the machine and he removed it himself and he gave it to me. And I said, this does not say my name. I quickly looked at the card. It said Jenna, I think. Right. And was it the same bank? Like, was it was it that? Um, it was I mean, the same bank and it got wow. me thinking, I wonder if they have a card from every other bank uh, right. just ready wow. for them. But I... Uh, so yeah, I saw the card and it didn't have my name. Quickly, my first instinct was to open the door, which was risky on my end. But I kind of wanted to catch him and put him on the spot. It was during the day in front of a hotel. People were walking around. I think he just felt like it wasn't the right time for him to make a scene. So he immediately gave me back my my card. Tried to play it cool as if uh, saying, "Oh, this is this is a prank. We didn't actually take your money. You could check your um like you can check your online banking." And I said, I saw the swipe. Like, I'm not, I can't be fooled. I saw the swipe. I know you skimmed my card. I know you have all the information. Um, and I tried to give him a lecture at the spot. I don't know oh, why. Oh, interesting. That's, uh, yes. <laughs> I think yeah. I saw a kid in the back. The kid got in the seat as soon as I called them. And I was like, is this the type of example you want to set for this, for this young man? And he also jumped in on it, tried to defend the guy. And I said, you know what? I'm going to take a video of you both. And as soon as I pulled out my phone, they put their mask on. And the driver said, you can't really do anything. You can't see my face. My mask is on. And that's when I started recording. I said, um, I think it's in the video. I say yeah. something along the lines of, you steal money is what you do. Uh, and I took a video of the machine as well, which I wish now I would have like grabbed it and smashed it on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all the things you think of after the fact, right? Oh, my um, God. How much? Yeah. So, 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 just in terms of what I mean, and then of course you you decided later uh, once you'd cool, once you'd sort of thought back, you decide you're going to post about this and see what the reaction was, and it it really was something quite phenomenal, wasn't it? 
It was. I think a lot of the comments were, you know, report it, report it. And I had reported it. The reason why I posted the TikTok is because I couldn't attach the video that I took of the driver in my online report. And I said, you know, I reported it. I did what I had to. I locked my card. I replaced it. But I just also, I felt like it wasn't enough. I wanted to also post about it and show people what the car looks like, what the plate looks like. I'm um, in hopes that if they do run into these people, you know, just stay away. Because I know that if I had seen something like this on social media, I would have avoided the situation from the beginning. I wouldn't have been naive. I wouldn't have just fallen for the trap. So I kind of wanted to... Uh, to ensure that no one goes through that again. But yeah. little did I know it was a lot more common than I thought. And there were a lot of comments of people saying, you know, it's the same guy, the same car, the same everything. So that was very interesting. Did not expect that type of reaction whatsoever. Yeah. And, and you also found out that others hadn't been as lucky as you were, or not lucky, but hadn't caught on as quickly uh, as yeah. you had. Yes. A lot of people had mentioned that after the fact, after they went home, um, they had to use their card for something and notice that it wasn't theirs. Or someone even said it went on for days until they went to the bank to uh, withdraw money. And they realized, oh, this is not my card. So it's, it's and by then they had already stolen everything in the card. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's why I wanted to put it out there as well, because I figured it would be easy if I didn't pay attention. Yeah, for, for anyone else out there, because we all know that scams have a way of uh, traveling fast around countries and around the world, that these are not ever new ideas, right? Everyone picks up on another idea that's worked. What would you what would you warn people about? I mean, I guess this happened in broad daylight in a busy place. This wasn't sort of late at night. Um, and and I, I do. And they must have just had a look and thought, OK, she's she might be sympathetic if I had to go tell her this story. Mm-hmm. Well, I was. <laughs> um, the advice, I think, going through the comments as well, a lot of people who left a lot of advice is, if anything, cabs prefer cash than cards. Right. So that should have been my first, first, first red flag. Um, that would be the lesson. I think also never hand your card if you are to pay for anything, ask for the machine. Um, but in these situations, you know, if cards are involved, do not engage because odds are there's something behind it that's a lot bigger than you think. Yeah, you you mustn't regret the fact, though, that your first instinct was to help, because that seems like the right thing to want to do. I mean, I've been asked this question before. I don't think I regret helping so much, because I know that I covered my bases. They weren't actually able to steal anything. Um, But I think... It's sad when you try to do something um, to help others, but I do believe in good karma and um, I don't, I don't necessarily regret it. Uh, I mean, also I was able to help police catch them. So that's yeah, the lining, I guess. Yeah. There's been an arrest. I gather the boy, the 14 year old has been uh, apprehended and charged with possession of proceeds of crime over 5,000 Um mm-hmm. In the dynamic there, I mean, it's hard sometimes when it comes to to, to youth. Uh, did you feel a certain amount of sympathy for him too? Or was it, do you think he was part of this? Um, do you think he was really part of this? I mean, he was the one that approached me and sold his story. So he was most definitely part of it. But he is very young, which is why um, looking now at all the You know, I saw the article on CBC that he was arrested and it is sad. He's young. Uh, I mentioned that my brother is the same age. I'd never want to see someone this young be involved in something this big at such a young age. Uh, But 
I guess that's why I didn't even include him in the video. In my video, you could just see the driver. I kind of tried to avoid the child um, because I figured, you know, maybe they're related somehow. The father could take responsibility for the actions. But now I noticed that, you know, the boy has been part of multiple scams before. Um, it's it's sad, honestly. I still do feel some sympathy towards him specifically, not necessarily the driver. Uh, because he's young, he can't make his own decisions. I think he's when you're surrounded by this type of environment, it's easy for you to get sucked into it. Yeah. And, and any parting advice? I mean, I, I gather it all happened pretty quickly, right? I mean, you were just sort of going about your day and all of a sudden you're you're dragged into this situation where someone is making a plea to your kinder nature. And it's hard to resist that sometimes. And sometimes if it's if it's a teenager, for instance, or someone young, as you were pointing out, it's hard to pick up on the fact that there, your alarm bells mightn't go off right away. It is hard, definitely. I think that's what helped their story. If it was an older person stopping me, I mean, even elderly, I feel bad for. I think I, I'll just feel bad for anyone. But <laughs> if it was someone a bit older, um, the you know, I guess the idea that if an older person is trying to pay for a cab and they're not, they don't know how to, there's, you know, somewhere where you can go deposit your money. Like an, an adult can figure it out, I think, um, more so. But uh, a child, I just felt felt for him. So I guess that helped their story. It's very sad when they use that to feed on people's kindness. Yeah. Well, Sajid Kalani, thank you so much for sharing your story with me. I'm glad it, I'm glad you uh, this all worked out for you, and I'm glad they managed to, uh, to find the perpetrators, because at least other people in this case uh, won't have to suffer the same fate. But I have no doubt there are others out there uh, practicing the exact same kind of scams, and it's good that people know more about them. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, thanks to all the people that viewed and shared. If it wasn't for that, I would have... I mean, I hope my my uh, video would have been enough for the report, but I do know that the views played a huge part. And I hope this plays as an example for all those still part of these scams to kind of just stop what they're doing. And <laughs> I just hope this sets an example. <laughs> well, it certainly did, Saja. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. The days are getting longer. It's getting cooler. Um, I think a lot of us have been living through some unseasonably warm temperatures. We certainly have out here in BC, but it feels like fall is definitely on the way. You wake up in the morning now, it's dark around 7 a.m. You get out in the evening, it's dark. Yeah, the seasons are changing. And that can only mean one thing, of course, is that it's also heading into what typically would have been called in times past flu season. Walking around these days, you'd also be forgiven for thinking that COVID is no longer with us. Protective measures are all but gone. You see the odd person wearing masks, of course, as is their right. Um, But really, a lot of those measures that we had in place over those early years of the pandemic are gone. Uh, I was just at a concert the other day. The place was packed. No one was wearing a mask. Of course, we just don't do much of that anymore. Um, COVID itself, I mean, we know that it's still out there. People are still getting sick. People are still testing positive. But in many ways, the virus is less threatening. It's causing less severe infections when we do get it. Uh, Not to mention that we have greater immunity to it, thanks to vaccinations, new vaccines, uh, and prior infections, of course. But heading into winter and fall, or fall and winter, rather, our healthcare system remains under intense strain, as we've talked about repeatedly on this show. And not only are we still coping with an ever-changing COVID virus this year, with so many mandated protections now gone, we expect other illnesses, such as the flu, to make a big comeback. They did, uh, I believe, in Australia, where it's already been winter, of course. It's summer, heading into summer now. 
And remember, viruses, of course, don't care about your politics. They don't care about your beliefs. They don't care about how you interpret the charter. They don't care who you vote for. So what is at state? Or what is is the state of COVID in our communities these days? How will it interact with what could be a more significant flu season this year? What are you doing to protect yourself from it? Are you taking advantage of what's available? If not, why not? And what should you know to, and how to best protect yourself and your family against all of it this year? Joining me now with more on that is Jason Tetro. He's a microbiologist and host of the Super Awesome Science Show. He's also the author of The Germ Code and The Germ Files. Jason, as always, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be joining you again. So, uh, I, I, you know, walking to work this morning, you feel like the days are getting shorter. It feels like flu season, if there's such a thing. And this year we have, uh, obviously, we have the specter of COVID still with us. Um, what are the concerns heading into this uh, to this winter? Well, it's uh, basically another race. Um, we ran into this before when we had the vaccine and then we had the Delta. We tried to get everybody vaccinated before the Delta came around. It didn't necessarily work so well. And now we're in the same boat where we've got these, um, what we call descendants, if you will, uh, lineages that are based on the BA5 that are coming around. Um, you're going to hear numbers like 2.75 or BQ 1.1. You know, these are the ones that are um, circulating at the moment, but they're all sort of based on the BA5. So if you've actually got a BA5 vaccine, um, there's a really good likelihood that it's not going to affect you significantly. Um, does that mean it's it's the end of COVID? No, it means that COVID is turning into, well, basically like the flu. And right. yes, there there will be a flu season. <laughs> yes. There's no doubt about that. Uh, you know, because of um, the measures that were in place of late, mm -hmm. uh, we saw flu seasons that were far less severe yeah. uh, re recently than, than how we had seen previously. This may be the first year where flu season, a real flu season, collides with COVID. What might mm -hmm. that look like and what are your concerns there? Well, I mean, the, the biggest concern, obviously, is going to be the pressure on healthcare because if you look back prior to 2019 and sort of before that, around the second week in December, we always see the news headlines that uh, emergency rooms are packed and, uh, you know, there's no room for admittance and, you know, people should not really be coming to hospitals or ERs because they've got the flu. Now you're going to have COVID on top of that. <laughs> so it's only going to really put an extra amount of pressure on our healthcare system. And, you know, for the longest time, we've been talking about using the measures. I call them the ABCs, protecting your airway, keeping your bubbles intact and, you know, know who your contacts are. We've been doing this so that we can protect the healthcare, um, you know, as a whole or that universe. Well, we don't have those anymore. And if you're not going to be following the ABCs, then there's going to be an increased risk for you to get either flu or COVID. Um, and then that's going to put an increased pressure on the healthcare system, whether it be your local healthcare provider or the emergency room. Yeah, I mean, you, you make the obvious, you make a great point. And it's, from the very beginning, a lot of these measures were simply meant to, to ensure that those who needed health healthcare uh, were able mm -hmm. to get it if they were sick. And once again, we're heading into a situation where uh, the healthcare system is still under a lot of strain, and it's about to be put under more strain. Are you concerned? I mean, we've seen the rate of hospitalization climbing even for COVID recently. Yeah, yeah and that is very concerning because we thought that we were at a point where we were going to be okay. But again, it's that race. The BA4, BA5, and descendants are the ones that are circulating now. And we just had the BA4, BA5 bivalent approved like two weeks ago, right? So right. we're back in that, that sort of flux zone where we are going to be able to defeat the BA4, BA5 through vaccination. 
but it's not happening fast enough. Or if you would like to go back to January of 2021, (laughs) it's basically what we ran into. So this is something we're going to have to deal with. What I'm hoping, though, is that people will recognize that as we start to increase the number of cases or they start hearing about people being sick or that they sort of look around and they're seeing more people who are sniffling or or blowing their noses or coughing, that they choose to put some kind of barrier protection. Masks is what we're using today. But for the longest time before that, I used a scarf. Still worked. Right. Just any kind of protection, right? Exactly. Because, I mean, COVID, and you talked about the variants and the new variants. We know that COVID is mutating. We don't know what's going to come next. It's clear that Omicron uh, doesn't impact us quite the same way that previous variants did. But still, mm-hmm. it's not, not as fearsome or as fatal, but it's still it's still out there. I mean, there's, it's not to be dismissed, right? Well, and the other thing that you have to realize about COVID, um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus itself, it attacks one of the most important regulatory systems in your body. It's called the renin-angiotensin system or the RAS. You don't need to know that. What you do need to know, though, is that it helps to control numerous different processes in your body, from your kidneys to your heart to your blood pressure to inflammation. And the reason I really stress that inflammation is because if you can't get that inflammation down over time, then symptoms are going to continue because the symptoms are not due to the virus. The symptoms are due to your immune system. And if your inflammation continues on past eight weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, well, welcome to long COVID. Right. And we'll talk about long COVID uh, after we take a quick break because there's two new studies out about it. Before you do that, Mm -hmm. though, tell me about the bivalent vaccines because they're out there. Uh, I'm registered for mine, I think, next week. Mm -hmm. I know people have already gotten them. But you get the sense that that there is a significant segment of of the population who just aren't interested in getting new more vaccines against COVID. Yeah, and that vaccine fatigue is normal. And and remember, we have flu every year, and we're lucky if we get 41% of the population getting the flu vaccine every year. So we're now in a situation where we are looking at probably 30 to maybe 40% of the population choosing to go get this bivalent booster. The difference, however, is that, as I said, the that are coming, the virus versions that are coming are based on the BA5 and only the most recent addition to the vaccine arsenal, the bivalent that has the BA4, BA5, is going to be able to help you to prevent any kind of infection. Now, all the ones previously, they're going to help you to prevent serious infection. They're going to help you to prevent hospitalization and death. But if you want to have the utmost protection, well, then that four or five is really where you want to be going. Uh, you know, as always, there's information flying around on social media. I see it everywhere. The big debate recently has been been about whether vaccines protect against transmission or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, why did you clear up a few? If you could clear up a few of those, uh, some of them, because there's always sort of these debates going on. Uh, but uh, you, I'm sure you're aware of the latest ones. <laughs> Can you clear up some of the oh, confusion yeah. on those? Yeah, well, let's just put it this way. So you're standing in a crowd, right? And you're vaccinated. And that's great. However, is that going to prevent you from being exposed if somebody coughs on you? No, the virus is still going to get inside of you. If that person is infected, even if they have been vaccinated and they cough on you, is that going to prevent them from putting virus into the air that could possibly get it? No. So do vaccines prevent exposure? No. Do they prevent transmission from people who are already infected? No. What vaccines do is they train your immune system to go, hey, guys, we just saw something that came in that's foreign exposure, and and we don't like it. We want to get rid of it. 
and then it fights. And the best part about a vaccination is that the fight is incredibly efficient, it is incredibly accurate, and it really does a good job of maintaining your balance, if you will, so that you don't go into that inflammatory problem, or even worse, the virus doesn't actually grow to a large enough extent that you actually end up getting sick. That's what vaccines do. But when people start like, oh, it doesn't prevent a transmission, it doesn't prevent exposure, nothing prevents it except the mask. So right. just get used to that. And this year, would you recommend, I mean, I'm getting my flu shot and the uh, bi uh, bivalent at the same time. Mm -hmm. Is that what you recommend? Yeah. So there have been studies done and it shows that there's a little bit like we're talking maybe six to eight percent likelihood that you'll have a little bit more side effects as a result of getting both at the same time. But you also have to realize we're in the process of looking at developing one shot that has both flu and COVID in it at the same time in terms of a vaccine. So, yeah, I mean, if you want to get them both at the same time, unless advised by your healthcare provider not to, I, I don't see a problem. There's been these new studies that I saw earlier this week on long COVID, Jason, and it's interesting because we didn't have a lot of data, and now mm -hmm. we do. Now we have some more. What kind of clearer picture are we getting? Um, honestly, what it's telling us is that very similar to what I've been saying for like the last 10 years, there's about 30% of our population who have issues with their immune system with respect to inflammation. Now what's happening is that there is a virus that, as I said in the previous segment, is really focusing on the regulatory system that controls inflammation. And that's going out of control. And this 30 to 40% of the population are finding themselves in a situation where they're unable to control that inflammation over the long term. Thus, this is where the long COVID comes in. Now, that's sort of the scientific explanation. When you look at it from a purely population-based, it really does mean that unless you know the cytokines and, and the T-cell responses and the monocyte responses and all of this type of stuff about your own body, you really don't know if you're at risk of getting long COVID or not, which is why you don't want to get COVID, period. In the first place. I, I mean, I gather that uh, we've seen a significant shift uh, as we went from the previous uh, variants into Omicron with the mm -hmm. impacts of long COVID. Uh, yeah. How is that? So what ends up happening is that you look at the amount of virus that is being produced, and then you look at how that virus is affecting the uh, immune system and, of course, that um, regulatory system. And what we found was that the original lineage did some damage. But Delta was the one that really took out your system. And a lot of the long COVID that we've been seeing probably traces back to a Delta infection. Now, for Omicron, it's a much more mild infection. You don't seem to have the type of issues that you saw with the Delta. So we're starting to see fewer and fewer cases of long COVID associated with Omicron. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're past long COVID. What it means is that maybe it's not sparking enough inflammation to, to sort of take you into that long COVID territory. But again, unless you know your immune system inside and out, you really don't want to be taking that chance. No, I mean, we've interviewed people, healthcare professionals who didn't know their immune system that well, needless yeah. to, you know, not to mention the rest of us. And and I guess like, once again, the concern here is, is that you're putting increased strain on the healthcare system. Well, again, there's the increased strain on the healthcare system. But then, and this is something we talk about every year with respect to flu, um, you've heard about sort of presenteeism, people going to work when they're sick. There is a productivity concern. And economically speaking, you could be 
responsible if you happen to have COVID and you sort of try and go about your daily life to what has sometimes been anywhere from about 10 to maybe $35 million in lost productivity simply as a result of people not really figuring out that they should stay home when they're sick. So there are other factors that are economically related to this. And so I think rather than just looking at it from a healthcare perspective, you have to look at it as a universal, I'm living in Canada perspective. And we have seen some provinces who have enacted some of these sort of sick leave rules, which is great. The problem is, of course, if they're only temporary or they're going to be rescinded when COVID goes away, then we're right back where we started, except that instead of a bunch of viruses like RSV, flu, rhinovirus, um, we're now going to have COVID on top of that. Uh, and it's it's going to be, you mentioned it again with those three things combining, this may be, again, yet another winter, unlike winter, a winter we've seen before. Yeah, and Australia has already shown that to us. So you see... Um, during our summer, it's their winter, and you sort of get a feel for what's going to happen up here by seeing what goes on down there. And they've had a fairly remarkable flu season this year, um, and it's sort of mimicking what was supposed to have happened in 2020. You see, 2020 was supposed to be the 11th wave of the 2009 pandemic, if you remember that one. Some right. called it swine flu. Please don't call it that. Um, and, it, and it really did a number in Australia, and it's probably going to come up here and do a number because we haven't had exposure to flu for like two and a half years. And even though we may have the vaccines from many, many years ago, it's always good to get a booster, which is why you want to go and get the flu vaccine. And if you don't, then there's a good likelihood you may end up with an even greater level of infection if you get that H1N1. And then you may pass that on to other people, especially if you're inter intergenerational households, and then it could turn into a mess, which is at home. And then, of course, that shifts over to healthcare. Boom. So you can see how this thing is like an Ouroboros. It's just the snake eating itself. Jason Tetro, uh, that's yeah, that that is certainly a, a, a vivid image. <laughs> thanks so much. For, <laughs> thanks so much for your time tonight. It was such a pleasure. Take care. Canada's Department of National Defense is investigating whether former Canadian fighter pilots are helping the Chinese military after reports in Britain and Australia that Beijing was recruiting Westerners to train its own air force. The British government announced this week that it is taking steps to stop China trying to recruit China trying to recruit serving and former British military pilots to train Chinese ones. It comes again after the BBC reported that up to 30 former military pilots had gone to train members of China's PLA. The Australian newspaper reported that Australians were among the group of pilots and the Daily Mail, not always the most reliable source, said Canadians were also being recruited. Thus, I gather the investigation. Forces News in Britain spoke with military historian and former Army Air Corps pilot Paul Beaver. I don't think there's any excuse for going to China and telling them our tactics, uh, techniques and procedures. And that's the thing that, that pilots and uh, other aircrew live by. It's how they survive. Any former pilot has, if he's got any sense about him, remembered his threat briefings. He's also read the uh, integrated review last year uh, and the update to that, which has been in the news, that China is a potential adversary. 
That is Forces News in Britain speaking with military historian Paul Beaver. Uh, Well, in Britain, the Ministry of Defense issued an intelligence alert warning pilots against taking part in this. No word yet on when the Canadian military will announce any findings here. Joining me with more on this is Charles Burton. He's a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and a former Canadian diplomat in Beijing. Charles, thanks 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 again. Thanks for nice to have you back. It's good to speak with you, Ben. So this was a this was an interesting story because I think something like this has gone on, not necessarily in the military, but it seems to be quite endemic in China. And all of a sudden, uh, out comes these reports, and it seems like there's a real scramble going on. What did you make of it? Well, I mean, it's completely outrageous that that the Chinese government would have access to recently retired um, members of the uh, uh, British and uh, and possibly Canadian military, as well as Australian, in the sense that it's a it's an intelligence goldmine for them to be able to establish um, the shortcomings and and um, weaker points of the potential adversary if they're able to get these pilots to you know directly or inadvertently provide the British with with a means to assess. Uh, what sort of adversary the 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 British the the Australians the Canadians would be, and in time of war, you know, China does a lot of this kind of thing. Um, you know, we even see it with uh, with retired um, uh, politicians and and civil servants. The idea being that you know people when they retire want to be able to do um, important and useful things, and China provides them with. You know some some source of income, but I think a lot of it is really about stroking their egos and and giving them a sense of importance and convincing them that they have a special relationship with China, and all the time using them to try and siphon out information of strategic use to the Chinese regime. Um, you know, there's absolutely uh, it's absolutely ridiculous that that these pilots are permitted to go and work for a potential adversary. We really need to have a lot more control over what people who have privileged information in the course of their working lives are able to do once they once they leave uh, government service, and uh, you know definitely going and be and being in a position where they could be compromised by a potential adversary is just uh, you know it just doesn't make any sense at all. It is mind-boggling. I think what I meant is I wasn't surprised the Chinese tried. I was just surprised that, uh, I mean, according to these reports, that 30 pilots had said yes. Apparently, the, the compensation is is pretty hefty, 250,000 pounds. So that's about 260,000 U.S. dollars, you know, more than 300,000 Canadian uh, dollars. That's a lot of money. But the, as you mentioned, they're not being recruited for their piloting. I mean, perhaps a little bit for their piloting skills. But as you mentioned, this really is a gold mine. This is uh, these are these are they're recruiting what they know, not what they can, not necessarily how well they can fly. I think that's definitely the case. I mean, obviously, the equipment's different. And, you know, of course, it's desirable to have veteran pilots uh, providing training, but China has lots of those already. So this is really about um, taking advantage of a weakness in our system. You certainly won't see any former Chinese uh, military uh, coming and working for us. So, you know, that they'd never allow that to happen. So, you know, it is very it is very challenging. How can we restrict the freedom of people to seek out a new career after they retire, or tell them that they can't accept a generous job offer because um, you know it looks it's clearly designed to 
to to to be buying uh, more than their than their training expertise, but but you know to get hold of information that they've come by in the course of their of their military training. And and you know pilots know a lot um, about what's going on at the higher levels, and and they debate among themselves the weaknesses of training and tactics and and their equipment. Um, we've just got to we've just got to to put a stop to this and and the fact that so many of these um uh former military pilots uh, have been engaged in this kind of activity does really call into question the degree to which um uh, the australian and and british and canadian intelligence services are aware of what people who have classified knowledge and military of military secrets are doing um once they leave the service post-career. We understand from the articles how this was being done. It was being done through an intermediary in South Africa, I gather. That would seem to be sort of the normal course of business, right? But uh, but you know this well. You, you, you spend a lot of time paying a lot of attention to China. Uh, how are these sorts of plans devised? Clearly, it wasn't just one rogue within the uh, within the PLA who said, hey, you know what, it would be great if we if we brought in a few Western trainees just to give our pilots a little more, uh, Western trainers rather, to give our pilots a bit more of a breadth of experience. That re- This is obviously something that would have been talked about, calculated, planned and done, right, you'd think? Oh, I mean, I think it's all part of China's uh, Communist Party's United Front Work Department and Ministry of State Security planning. You know, they might even want someone like me who'd worked in the Canadian Foreign Service to come in there and develop um, a relationship and a feeling of trust and stroking me by telling me how... uh, what a great person I am and, you know, making me feel less sorry about the fact that when I hit a certain age, they they sent me out without having meaningful work to do. Um, but, you know, it's clearly it's wrong. And, and I think that for a lot of these people, they're gradually cultivated over time. And if they want to continue in the employment of China, they would have to be um, amenable to providing information to the uh, Chinese intelligence agencies that they really shouldn't. And this is normally done in a in a very calculated and sophisticated way, where you know you're you're gradually edged over until you find yourself in a position where you're providing the enemy with information that you know you shouldn't, but by the time you realize what's happened, you've got in so deep, it's hard to get out. And as you say, the money that they're paying is pretty generous too, and people tend to to, to want to continue to receive those checks. Yeah, it's hard to turn down turn down the money. We, I mean, I think we always knew that uh, that people of Chinese descent or Chinese nationals working abroad could be uh, could fall victim to the pressure. At least, I mean, to be pressured into doing things maybe they didn't want to do uh, or recruited. But in this case, it just seems to be pure money, right? I mean, here's here's a lot of money. Why don't you come work for us? Uh, I guess we have to depend on. You know, and I imagine that most people in the military uh, have have a, have a sophisticated moral compass. But in this one. You'd have to rely on the moral compass, I would think. Well, I think the fact that they're targeting um, retired people is also part of that. You know, as I said, um, you, you leave an, uh, you know, a stimulating career where you're doing exciting things with you know, amazing uh, military hardware. And all of a sudden you're told, thank you very much for your service and you know, good luck with the rest of your life. And China gives you an opportunity to feel important and to be working in your area of specialty and still getting into airplanes, you know, and 
and training the next generation, it's it, it would obviously be very appealing, even if it wasn't about the, the money. You know, it's, it's just about the, making people feel important and valued. And yeah. I think that the psychological manipulation aspect is something that Chinese intelligence really excels at. And, and you know, frankly, they're just much more sophisticated in manipulating people than uh, than we are. You know, they... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've, I'm picturing their arrival dinner when they got there, the celebration, the photos of them up. You know, I could picture it. I could picture how much they would have been faded when they had gotten there. It's, uh, yes, it and is. I mean, no, typically yeah. being access to people who are higher rank than they really deserve and being given the impression that they're special and, and you know, and sophisticated and, and uh, understand China better than most people. And there's a pattern there that's repeated over and over again. And, um, you know, a, a certain proportion of people are seduced by this and end up uh, providing very valuable information for the Chinese of a, of a military intelligence component that's worth a lot more than the 250,000 pounds or dollars or whatever it is they're getting yeah. paid. Um, from what we've been hearing this week, Charles, from uh, Xi Jinping, um, China's not not uh, not exactly extending any olive branches towards us. So, training their military seems like a, a decidedly even worse idea this week than it would have been even uh, a few years ago. Absolutely. I mean, in Mr. Xi's uh, speech that he gave last week, he emphasized that you know China should be prepared for some stormy weather, and he has a plan, the community of the common destiny of mankind, whereby China should become the dominant superpower on the planet in two phases, um, starting with 2035, and then to become the, the replacement for the, you know, the liberal world order dominated by the United States and like-minded powers by 2049, the 100th anniversary of the People's Republic of China. So, you know, this program, generously funded, is definitely uh, part and parcel of this. And, you know, you talk about the nice dinners and and the psychological analysis of the people who are spending protracted periods in China, which ones would be um, amenable to subversion by honeypot schemes, and could you get them to start helping out not only in analyzing the strengths and weaknesses of um, Western um, military um, doctrine, hardware, and training, but, uh, you know, what direction uh, is the West moving in developing uh, better defensive and offensive capabilities? You know, could you get these retired people to do some asking around among their former subordinates, uh, you know, just to just uh, just because the Chinese would like to know a few things. You know, the, the possibilities are, are pretty strong, and I don't think that China would be putting out the money and making all the effort to bring these people into China if they weren't deriving substantial benefits from it. The, I mean, the other issue is the, the lack of capability of our intelligence services to have been aware of what was going on until it really became as as big as it's become. And, you know, our defense people are looking into it. Um, presumably that's because they really don't know if there are Canadians who have been um, co-opted into such a subversive scheme or not. And, you know, we should have known before they accepted the job offer in China and done something about it before the damage was done. 
Yeah, it does paint a much broader picture. I mean, there's uh, Alex Dosky's just put out a new book. I know we, I was, you were, you were talking about this about sort of how it all worked in Australia and just how coordinated it is and how asleep at the wheel of many Western countries have been to this threat uh, of, of essentially allowing uh, allowing China to not not all of allowing the Chinese regime, uh, specifically the intelligence services, to, to come in and, and and take what they want or at least try to. Yeah, I mean, uh, Alex's book is entitled Spies and Lies, but its subtitle is How China's Greatest Covert Operations Fooled the World. And, you know, the fact that we just have not given the kind of attention and resources to um, what China's doing, and I think part of it is like the title of another book produced by a Vancouver-based reporter, Sam Cooper, is Willful Blindness. In other words, you know, there are elements in the Chinese regime who have got into our political class and convinced them that it would be a bad idea to up our, our game in countering Chinese uh, malign activities, intelligence operations, and so on, because that could be damaging to Canada-China relations. And if we did anything too uh, offensive to China, that we would lose trade opportunities and so, you know, there's a strong lobby within Canada of businesses who have lucrative arrangements with Chinese business networks who um, who um, counsel our government to to go easy on China and, you know, and not not counter their their espionage, their cyber espionage, um, you know, economic espionage and political espionage and not to not to interfere with Chinese operations in Canada to interfere with uh and menace and harass persons in Canada that the Chinese regime uh, finds uh, hostile to their regime purposes, like Uyghurs, uh, Canadian Uyghurs and Tibetans. And and then we've had the stories recently that the Chinese have set up police stations in Canada to, you know, completely floating our laws um, to, to um, increase these operations. And we just seem to be prepared to let it happen rather than take this matter much more seriously and have a coordinated all-of-government approach to put an end to it. Yeah, you mentioned it earlier, uh, right off the top, you know, uh, you don't imagine you'd ever see a Chinese pilot here training the Canadian Air Force. Imagine if some of the things that were going on here were happening in China, they wouldn't happen for, <laughs> it wouldn't last more than five minutes. Uh, Charles Burton, as always, thank you so much for your insight. Great to speak with you, Van. 